Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pets, a podcast where we talk about plant science. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Yoram. Every single time I say that, you're supposed to like jump in and say you're Yoram, and it's like, you always pause for just a little bit extra. I don't want to uh, fall into yours. Like, I don't want to interrupt you, Tegan. And so, yeah, I can try (laughs) next time. There should be three seconds of spacing around everything I say. Just um, (laughs) Just, just give me the respect I deserve. (laughs) Just to be safe. Yeah. um, Also, I'm always caught by surprise that we're starting the show. Yeah, that seems to be the case. (laughs) What's going on? What's going on? uh, Where am I? Um, (laughs) I'm also caught by surprise. I haven't opened the document up that says what our... What you've done this week. So you'll just have to tell me. It just says <laughs> addicted. Addicted, I have. Yeah, I'm addicted right. now, Tegan. I, I Shall came... I guess what you're addicted to? Yeah, maybe maybe that's that's a good idea. I think I know already some of your addictions. I think you're you're quite addicted to like buying new technology, I would say. Yeah. That's a thing. I'm going to guess that now it's some sort of like working with your hands, woodwork, like maybe <laughs> sawing things. I can imagine like you have like some sort of jigsaw cutter and you really like like cutting out shapes um cutting <laughs> holes in vans that's what i'm going to go with looking see cutting holes in vans i mean it's definitely stuff i've done in the past uh in, in mm-hmm. past weeks um cutting I, I cut a hole in my van and put a, a um a, w- a window in it i bought a new saw and started cutting wood uh, extensively to build like uh, i built a a cupboard for the bathroom and we'll build another one and then we'll build all of the interior of the van and all this stuff but this is not what i'm addicted to this is just stuff that keeps me busy from thinking too much about stuff um so what i'm addicted to now and i have to come clear on this i started using tiktok and i love it oh my god that's why you haven't messaged me for two weeks now i understand i only started (laughs) using tiktoks like four or five days ago literally not, not, not much longer than that um and I'm you amazed. literally like two days ago. I I well yesterday I checked in. I was like, "Are you doing okay? Like I haven't heard. Are you okay?" And you're like, "Yeah, I'm not just. I'm not sure why I haven't been chatting very much. I'm okay." And now I know. Like you're just looking at people eating carrots on TikTok. No, that's the thing. Like I always thought TikTok was this like annoying side where everybody's dancing and pointing at the corners of their screen, and then there's like text boxes coming there where they point. And I hate that that content wherever i saw it i was i thought this is all what tiktok is this mm-hmm. is just like yeah dance super dances and like it's great when people enjoy these dances <laughs> but it's not for me uh mm-hmm. and i think i i looked into the app like two years or something ago or whenever it started and there was nothing <laughs> yeah, before it was cool you freaking hipster <laughs> no no when it was already like big but um when i was curious and there was nothing there for me but now i don't know what they did they have a magical algorithm it's insane like you you start using heard, for like half an hour and then yeah. you only get stuff that is great and like you i have, have heard really good things about the algorithm like it actually selects stuff that you will like as opposed to selecting stuff they want you to like like instagram yeah. is just starting to force like random crap on you based on what they want to promote and or yeah. shadow ban at the time um Absolutely. but yeah i've i've heard good things and yeah, I so I have like science accounts that I follow. I have like comedy stuff and you can sort of fine tune do you want like politics, do you want dancing, music, whatever, and just by sort of interacting with the thing and if it yeah, it's extremely addictive. Like I've lost many hours of sleep in the last couple of days. <laughs> um because I was just like 
at like half past 11 i was just i oh, yeah, just like have a short look at tiktok and it's like one at night or half past one and i'm like still scrolling to the point that actually like they have a function and they advertise it in the app that you can put a limit a time limit in the app um, oh that's cool and they advertise it in the app is like you look like maybe it's it's smarter to sort of regulate your time because, uh, and i mean they don't use any negative words they frame it very positively but in the end they're saying like <laughs> look this this stuff is addictive maybe take some precautions <laughs> maybe check on your baby <laughs> and so i did that now and but still like i'm i'm surprised how much i like it like it, it brought mm -hmm. me genuine joy because social media i i find most of them really annoying like twitter is like has most of the days it's bad but like on plant science twitter it's it's, it's mostly okay um instagram is is for me it's like 80 percent ads at this point mm -hmm. like so so much advertising like there's ads and then there's people promoting stuff on their own personal channels and then there's another ad so um yeah none of that on tiktok just like very fast paced <laughs> fun so yeah science at science yoram on tiktok follow me i need followers now on tiktok because i guess you get more features and something because i can do i can't do some of the things that other people can do and i like imagine like I had the feeling I was living to, to 15 seconds of video because um, I couldn't do more. And I've seen other people doing 60 seconds. Have you made videos yourself? I made two. I want to do... make videos of? I made uh, about plant stuff, but like very short plant stuff. We only had 15 seconds. There was like one person, they had like a, a, a soap bar from Lush with some seeds in them, like peeling stuff. And then one of them made it into the drain and then it started sprouting from the drain. And then... They took it out of the drain and planted it. It was like on a hairball. A little bit disgusting, but then they put it on yeah. nice soil. And it's like, a, I forgot what plant it was, but something nice to keep around. And they were like, oh, yeah, it grew on my hair. So it probably has my DNA in it. And I was like, nah, probably not because plants grow next to all kinds of DNA and they don't take it into their genome all the time. Sometimes they do. Sometimes, but probably not. Um, yeah, unlikely case. they would take some random hair DNA into them. Also, but, like yeah. hair has very little DNA on it, only like yeah, the hair follicle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, St that and the other one was something like this uh, response to the meme of this. Why do plants indoors, like plants outdoors, they survive anything and plant indoors, you water them wrong and they immediately die. And they were like, why is that? Why are plants so serious? And like, look, this, um, these are not the same plant. Like one of them adapted <laughs> to the outside. And the other one didn't adapt to the inside. And mm. so that's why they die quicker. This were my two videos recounted on a podcast. <laughs> I feel like, do you feel like the, the podcast format is actually better for explaining TikTok videos than the TikTok format is for watching TikTok videos? I... Or do you think I should get TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like if you have... Like if... at the start of each, each episode, should I just make you recount everything that you've seen on TikTok in the last week? I don't have to get TikTok, which has been, in fairness, has been our relationship for other things where I'm just like, Yoram, I don't want to deal with this. Please just like <laughs> tell me what's happening in German news or tell me, you know, what camera yeah. to buy or whatever. I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't All know. Right. Like, I don't know if I would like, on one hand, yes, I would recommend TikTok if you have this hole to fill of like, like fast paced entertainment. But at the same time, it's it's an absolute time sink. Like you, I, I yeah. It's it's insane. Like I have no other show, nothing, no other activity that keeps me that glued to a little screen without realizing how much time passes. Not not playing games, not watching TV shows, nothing. It's just like this constant scrolling. Every minute there's a new input. It's yeah. 
it's like crack cocaine of social media but cool maybe it's bad i don't know so far i'm enjoying <laughs> it um that actually nicely links up to the thing that i found out about this week my discovery was the word chuggy do you know what chuggy is no I guess I saw it on on Instagram um, on like a reductress post, and apparently, it's it's something that came that was originated in like 2013. So again, like I, I saw this word, I googled it, and it's like this has been around since 2013. I'm like Jesus, I'm I'm so old, like I, I've never heard of this. But despite that, when I googled it again today, there was two articles that have come out within the last like hour or like two hours. Okay. So it's obviously it is appearing now as a word. And it's basically, it's when you're trying to, you're trying too hard with something that's already a bit over. So it's kind mm -hmm. of that like. So like me joining TikTok. <laughs> it's exactly. I, I'm not saying it's a direct. Yeah, it might be. Um, so it's a little lame and a little bit out of a touch. And it's usually somebody who's like a millennial and who's trying to like hold on to things, which is like a little bit beyond like lower than their generation. Yeah, I mean, I'm not pretending that I understand what's going on in uh, very often, like, and I don't try to blend in. Like, I know that I'm sort of the old generation on this app. Although with the algorithm, it shows me people that are like me because I like things that are like me. So I don't really see the very young people who have no idea what they're talking about. But I, I identify with what Chugi. Chuggy, yeah. Yeah. I mean, probably we're saying it wrong because we are the wrong generation. <laughs> it's it's one of these things where it's like like Gen Z versus millennials and millennials are now like the old people and that's stressful and confusing for millennials and there are yeah. new words and sounds and yeah. <laughs> sure, why not? But that is, that is a thing that's happening right now. Um, you're welcome. Anybody who's, I don't know, older than 20, I guess, who's listening to this podcast. <laughs> who's never heard of this before chuggy is what's happening <laughs> that's definitely about me i will use that in my next tiktok um <laughs> oh my god big chuggy energy oof um, i don't <laughs> i don't know that you need to sexualize it immediately that sounded like that went somewhere that it didn't need to go uh tegan what else did you do <laughs> i haven't been doing much this week um I have been dealing with finding a new housemate and that seems to have happened now so I can relax a little bit. Oh, I did some like really big thing at work. I had, um, I was hosting and moderating the question time for a very large like kind of conference session. It was mm. quite like a short like seminar with just three speakers and a very short question session. But that was both highly, highly stressful and also then kind of satisfying afterwards. It's one of those things where like, when you're when you're as a researcher you do present quite often and some of those pre presentations are very important so like you do your defense or you do like a job interview where you have a seminar and you have this huge rush rush of adrenaline and you're like sweating and panicking but it's like it's exciting it's it's a thing that's happening um and i haven't done that for a while and i also you know i've been in my home for a while so i also haven't even had that kind of social performance to do for a while either so that was something where i was both socially and professionally performing after being in one house talking to one person for the last you know 14 months <laughs> <laughs> and it was really i was like i don't know if i'm gonna manage this this is really amazing <laughs> yeah um but that was good that was really good to do and oh, nice, nice to like 
try something again. And things are opening up a little bit here, so it's kind of that a bit that feeling of like, okay, this new things are happening. This is this is a good it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, here is also like we are opening up this stuff. I have to be honest, um not only since I started using TikTok, I will use that now throughout the show until it's like very annoying. <laughs> like it got annoying like two times ago when I started mentioning it. But like I don't really follow anymore what's going on in Germany um, in terms of COVID because they keep changing stuff all the time. So I just realized that you see more and more stuff opening up and you hear stories of people going on holiday. So I assume that's okay now. Um, mm. But yeah, but it's uh, it's it feels like with summer, there is like really like some... A nicer something's time coming. It, it, yeah, it's mm. feeling like something's good. Something good is happening, even though I don't fully understand what's going on at all times. Speaking of spring and change and new growth, let's talk about plants. <laughs> My favorite plant. Uh, what's your favorite plant today, Yaram? This week, it's my favorite plant. It's Gisostega uh, pinata, which is also it's called pinata. Huh? Pinata. Pinata. That like means penna. it has thin. That means it has thin leaves, right? P i pinata, pinnate leaves. Is P- that a thing? P e double n a t a. Like penne. Like penne. So it's it's penne shaped plant. Um, it's also called goblin gold, dragon's gold. Um. These are mysterious common names, and now come the common names that actually tell us what it is. It's also called luminous moss or luminescent moss. And it's a moss. It's a moss, and guess what? It's luminescent. Ooh. Um, it has a very glowing appearance, and that's how it got my attention as well. Um, I saw a picture on Twitter from user um, Bryophyte Survey, and they um, posted a picture of this like very strangely glowing plant it's like a very intense green glow that it was emitted from a sort of cave structure okay and that's already pretty much where it lives it lives in like damp caves and it's about 15 millimeters tall it's a bluish green moss that has like a very characteristic leaves on top it has no leaves on a stem just like some flat leaves on top um found all over the northern hemisphere so in, in, in Europe, but also North America, uh, across to the Asian continent. Um, so it's uh, very widespread. There's only this one species in its family. So um, it's a sort of a weirdo in its own little genetic family that spread uh, very far. And it seems to glow in the dark. And if you imagine like growing in a cave, there's not a lot of light there. And mosses, like plants, they sort of need yeah, light like to survive. Light, yeah. <laughs> Some light would be good. And um, so what they do is that they use a structure that's called the protonema, protonema um, which is a moss structure. This is part of their um, uh, their propagative tissue. So it's like a little sprout that, that uh, at one point breaks off. Or I think, no, it's like when the spores hit new ground and the, the protonema is the first bit that starts to growing. It's like a long um, chain of cells. And... In this species, in Chistostega penata, this protonema adapted, evolved to have a, a properties like a lens. It became sort of spherical oh, wow. or barrel-shaped and has like a very um, clear uh, uh, vacuole in it. 
And so it works like a lens that catches the light and directs it on the onto the chloroplasts that are behind it. And the MOS is even able to sort of aim this a little bit towards the light so they can have these lens arrays following the light so that the, the chloroplasts get light. And that allows them to grow in areas that see very little light because whatever light they get they utilize they focus mm -hmm. that on the chloroplast they do photosynthesis and they survive so that in itself is really cool that's so cool but then that doesn't explain why they're glowing so far um but whenever you have a lens you have some reflection from within the lens so that's what what's happening here so um, the light that reflects back from the chloroplasts then again go through the lenses and because these lenses work similar to cat eyes for example on bicycle right the the reflective parts that um, have this property that from wherever you shine the light it, it throws the light back to where the light comes from so if you're standing in a light source like in a cave entrance you have the light behind you it's hitting the moss it's thrown right back into you into the direction it came from where you are standing so you get it in your eyes and you see the light glowing brighter than the other areas around it that don't reflect the light they sort of mm -hmm. scatter it so it appears brighter than the rest and then makes it uh, uh, that makes it appear to glow and has this like strange green color because all of the other wavelengths of the light they are absorbed by the chloroplast to do photosynthesis so you only get sort of the the green yellowish reflective light um that's not utilized by photosynthesis and that's why they have like a very like uh, i will put a picture also like in the uh, in the in for the chapter art so you can see that but you can also um click the link in there it's really it almost looks like a gfp signal but it's not a chemical like it's not a, a chemical bioluminescence like we see uh, with algae with the gfp or with um like um fireflies like it's nothing like that it has nothing so it's not it's, it's not technically like luminescent it's reflective it's yeah. not yeah it's called luminous not moss but it's not yeah it's more of a ref okay mm -hmm. technically it's just like a reflective a very sort of high visibility moss like a high visibility vest but as a moss um and the other can we smear it over ourselves to I mean, can we use this? Can we grow it and use it? I mean, I'm sure we already have reflective materials. It just seems very cool. It seems very cool, but like it's very delicate. And also the structures that are responsible for these properties, um, these protonema, they are also a very delicate structure. So you mm. can't really sort of... You know, there's like the ones that are for not having people take photographs of you. Like if they try and take a flash photography, it just like... You could just have this moss all over you and then somebody tries to take like a paparazzi shot of you and just like, they just see like moss. <laughs> so yeah, we can't really use this moss for anything practical right now um, because it's it's a very delicate thing um, and it's the physics that are behind it we can recreate in other ways. So it's mostly um, a principle that we encounter for like reflective gear Um that is also represented in this moss. But there's one cool thing that I want to um, mention here to end this this part is that this plant has been around for a long time. So also people in the past were encountering it and that's where the names like Goblin Gold or Dragon's Gold come from. Because people would find these plants in a cave and they would look very magical, interesting, like precious, like something you would want to take out of the cave. But as soon as you take it out of the cave, it's not in a dark environment anymore. And the whole effect doesn't work anymore. Then it's just like 
a slightly pale ordinary plant and so this led to this this idea that um this is some sort of magical goblin gold that only works in a cave it only has like value when it's in the darkened cave where the goblins mined it from the mountain and if you take it out to the surface to the humans then it loses its its properties and um therefore uh yeah that's 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 sort of the magic of it and i quite like that idea that that um yeah, there's this this quote that I found on the Wikipedia where they say it's like uh, um, when he empties out the treasure which he hastily raked together in a cave, he sees roll out the sacks, not glittering jewels, but only common uh, common earth. So um, this idea that when you take something away from where it's originally been, it loses its value. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I've seen some pictures of it, and it looks really magical. And I like I know that there's like in sort of like a two-hour drive from here in the mountains, in, in Harz Mountains, there are places where these plants are. I don't have exact locations yet. I, I, tr- I see if I can find them. Because I want to travel Germany a little bit this year and it would be so cool to find a cave with like this glowing moss. It'd be such a cool thing to show your kid as well. It's like one of those things that really would capture the imagination. I mean, of adults also, but of, of children and really, yeah. you know, stimulate this fascination in plants from an early age. Yeah. So that's Schistotega penata, also called Goblin Gold, Dragon's Gold, or Luminous Moss. So today I am talking about Mark Spencer, and I found out about Mark just by kind of like Googling around and looking for random people, um, and had a look at his Wikipedia page, and then came across the fact that he's recently written a book, which I think is super relevant for us, and... He just seems to have a very cool background. Um, he's a botanist, but specifically he's a forensic botanist. So he's looking at plants involved in crimes, which is very cool and also very dear to our heart because we um, collaborate with Ellen Earhart, who has a podcast called Plant Crimes. So a little bit about Mark Spencer. I listened um, to an episode of the radio show The Life Scientific which is a BBC for um, sort of interview show with Professor Jim Al-Khalili. And he talks to different scientists about their, their life and also their work and, you know, how, what they do and why they love doing it. Um, so I listened to Mark's episode of that and that was really great. So a lot of the facts that I'm talking about here come from that. So he grew up in a kind of working class background in the UK, um, not very rich. He actually described it as rural poverty and said that it was like, you know, poor to the state of sometimes not being certain about basic stuff like food. Um, So there was that kind of contrast of this, like not having very much. But then he said he also had this really amazing rural area with rich natural environment, which was very inspiring. And he always loved plants. He said that actually his two loves growing up were plants and ducks um, (laughs) because he had a pet duck called Daisy, which that sounds quite cool. Um, And said that from a very young age, he was just fascinated with different types of plants. So, you know, he'd be driving along the highway with his mum and just sort of scream at her at the age of five or six or seven that she had to pull the car over because he wanted to go and look at something on the side of the road and find out what it was and see if it was different from the things that he'd seen before um despite that like he at school in primary school he was a good student he you know was one of the top of the grade but despite that when he went into high school he found the transition um sort of through those adolescent years really tricky um he did poorly in his o levels which is kind of like the the end exams i guess for for british people 
and he basically didn't want to be there. He hated secondary school. And he said the main reason for this was that he was different. He was gay. He had strong opinions and he voiced them. And because of that, he was not treated at all well by his peers. So he was bullied. Um, but on top of that, he said that the school didn't really support the learning he was interested in. So he really wanted to do botany. He also wanted to learn Latin to help him with taxonomy. So understanding those scientific names that Yoram and I always fail at pronouncing. <laughs> um, that seems to be a love. And the school just wasn't interested in that. So he said that there was basically this kind of mutual dislove where like, he was getting very poorly treated by the pupils at the school and then also he didn't feel the school supported him so he just turned off the school and was not into it at all so he kind of went out of school not having done super well and he said there was some years of misbehavior and stumbling around he did still maintain that love of plants he got to study horticulture and and do some horticulture at Kew for a little bit but that only lasted a short period of time and then he he moved into working in a bar for a while and that was kind of like his late teens and early 20s I think so then he was kind of exploring more his identity his sexuality and also getting involved in that activism that he'd been sort of you know those strong opinions coming through from childhood now became a part of activism on behalf of his identity um and at the time in Britain there was a section 28 um British law that came into act I think in the late 90s it was a, a Margaret Thatcher law I think 1998 and this was like prohibiting the promotion of homosexuality. Like, um, sorry, this is like very repressive um, for gay people. And at the same time, the pandemic was happening, the HIV pandemic. So that was a really big thing. And again, as we all know, like at the start, HIV was seen as not a problem of everyone. It was seen as a gay problem, which, you know, led to basically people ignoring it and treating people with HIV very badly. Um, so he had like that part of his life was very much focused on those issues and in the interview he said that was like a very very hard time he lost his best friend to the HIV I think Um, but it was still a very important time for sort of realizing who he was and his like what he wanted and and who yeah you know who he was as a person and then it was only in his sort of like later 20s that he sort of decided to go into this more traditional university setting and he studied botany at the University of Reading and did a PhD actually not in botany but in fungi and specifically in aquatic fungi so he studied these uumyces which are these um, filamentous egg fungies and specifically studied them in aquatic environments and he said that there he had this kind of strong guider a mentor um who was his undergraduate supervisor who had a fascination for these umyces and that really helped drive his love of the topic and he just you know there wasn't much known about them there still isn't much known about them he was really enraptured by this idea of discovering something new he also describes a little bit his phd and how a large part of his phd was just trying to get these things to grow in the lab. So his his supervisor had this huge collection and I'm sure it's very familiar to anyone who's tried to like grow a plant or an, an algae or anything that can grow perfectly happy. I mean, even birds and animal, like, like animals, that they're, they're perfectly happy doing their thing out in the wild, but you want to study them so you've got to get them into the lab. And half the struggle can just be getting them to grow in a semi-natural way under lab conditions. Um, so these um, uumyces, they sort of have spores and they can be held in storage for very long times, but he had to like bring them out of the storage and, and get them to grow. 
And he said that was really cool. Like he he got to work with some really rare species. I think one of them he said had only been found twice ever, but it was like sounds like a lot of technical stuff, which sets my teeth on edge a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So he clearly had like a love of this, but then he didn't stay in fungi. He is a botanist now. And part of the reason is that he just couldn't find a job in this field. And I think that's, I really appreciate that because that's something that we don't discuss very much in science, that a lot of an academic career, there are these kind of chance discoveries. There are chance people like him finding his mentor um, to get into a, uh, a topic. But then there are also some sometimes chance reasons why you leave a topic. So in this case, he couldn't find a job. Um Instead, he did some field botany for a bit, and then he got a job at the Natural History Museum. And this, again, was completely by chance. He said he just happened to see the ad, like he wasn't looking for it, he just saw the ad. He applied for um, that job, and that was studying nomenclature. So he became a botany curator at the Natural History Museum, and he did that job for 12 years, 2004 to 2016. And he's that's really one of his, his specialties. So he's now also an honorary botany curator at the Linnaean Society of London. So all this stuff that I, again, <laughs> have no have no patience or a skill <laughs> for. Very, very technical naming stuff. Um, yeah, I wonder what... All the taxonomy. I wonder how it works to be a botany curator. Like, I imagine sort of like an art curator who sort of selects what goes into a collection and what doesn't. Um I think it's more about um, sort of making sure things are labeled correctly and putting the labels on and, you know, looking at the nomenclature and looking at the the history and, and where things fit in and, and, yeah, that kind of stuff as well, I, it mm -hmm. seems. Yeah, I imagine so as well. Like I try to search it on a site, but there's nothing that's, like, easy enough for me to understand right now. But I also imagine, like, resolving, like, naming conflicts, like um, making sure that everything's up to, the, like, the current nomenclature because that changes over time um so stuff like that i imagine but yeah yeah i think he said something in the interview about how like you know the name is kind of what you are you're playing with these names but in the end that's just sort of an in you've got all these kind of connections that are coming along with that so like all these relationships that you're keeping in your your head and and later on he actually links taxonomy to forensic so he says that in, in both taxonomy and forensics, you have to have the skill at bringing in all of these diverse inputs to come sort of to a conclusion, to come to a solution. And he said that, that like having that background in taxonomy is what helped him move into the forensic field later mm -hmm. on. So yeah, he, he also has an interest in kind of urban environments. So understanding particularly how environmental change happens. And part of this is like that urban environments often have a, a history, especially that um, the London area, there's, there's a strong history of being surveyed for long periods of time because, you know, people have been there. But then he also said that like urban environments can be sort of the canary in the coal mine, that if change is happening, it often happens in the urban places first, especially when you look at things like invasive species, but also, you know, other human impacts. Um, it's going to happen where the humans are first. Um, so he has a strong interest in that. And then also moving into the forensics. And again, I love that he described in the interview um, that this sort of happened because of a phone call that just came <laughs> to him. Um, and he had a quote, I wrote it down. My journey into forensics, like so much of my career, has been almost entirely accidental. And I love I love that admitting that it, it just happened sort of by chance. Um, 
he said he's not very good at planning. This is something that came to him. Um, so, yeah, now, since 2008, up until now, he's sort of been involved in, in crime investigations across the UK, um, including quite serious crimes. So things from, like, burglary and wildlife crime um, and sort of damage and arson to domestic terrorism, sexual violence, murder. And this has kind of a, a variety. There's, like, sort of different ends to do this. So, you know, you can look at, for example... If you find a person, either a victim or somebody who's involved in the crime, you can look at what physical evidence they have. They might have pollen, they might have um, bits of plants. And again, he said this, this often matches not just with plant-based stuff, but you can also have like more geology people, so looking at the soil types. And again, there's this whole network of stuff that comes together to make the solution um, in this forensics. There's other things um, like... You can look at how long it's been since a site has been disturbed, um, you know, how long a plant has been growing. His favourite, he mentioned, was bramble plants. So they kind of make these thickets which look quite messy and nest-like. But he said that he understands how they grow and they grow in quite a specifically ordered way that has, like, seasonal growth. And based on that, he can really tell how long that thicket has been growing for. And the example he gave was that this can be really helpful if, for example, you find a, a body, it's not identifiable, but there's this kind of thicket growing over it. He can now say, this thicket is 12 years old, so if we're looking for this body, we need to go back to look for missing persons around 12 years ago. And suddenly you've narrowed down mm -hmm. this sort of section of missing people um, into, a very, into a very small timeline. So he called it um, vegetable calendars, actually, looking into this. <laughs> Um, so you should you should definitely I've, I've kind of sort of summarized what comes up in the the radio show. You should definitely go and listen to the radio show. It's only twenty five minutes long or something like that, and it's it's really really fascinating. He has recently published a book, and I think we're going to have to read this for our plant book club because it sounds also amazing. It's called Murder Most Florid, um, and it's this sort of. <laughs> tale of a forensic botanist um, inside the mind of a forensic botanist it came out um, at the end of 2019 and it's sort of you know his personal um, details of how his career has gone and how he has helped solve crimes with botany that definitely sounds like one for us definitely yeah I, I'm I have sort of his own side open at the same time and it's like yeah it looks really really interesting um, I know like in Germany there's a famous um, forensic entomologist uh, mm -hmm. who looks at bugs um, and I always found that fascinating like I I'm too squirmish to really care about bugs or murder that much but at the same time um, this this person made it so very interesting to follow along and hear these stories of like um, I mean, with bugs, we I think that's much more present on TV, where like the the presence or absence of specific bugs can tell you something about the conditions of of a murder or the the time that has passed. Plant forensics to me was also very new, but I mean, but when you think think about it, it's it's very related and very easy to understand. Yeah, I mean, Mark also mentions that on his website. So when he's talking about his his own forensic botany side of things. He does say um, it's most useful when applied in conjunction with other disciplines such as soil science, entomology, which is the insects, forensic anthropology, and forensic archaeology. So he says, you know, again, it's this whole yeah. this whole story thing, yeah, yeah. and even within the plants, there's like there's different 
angles. So there's like the pollen or the trace, you know, trace parts, or there's like the growth or mm-hmm. different sides. Yeah. Um, the final thing I want to mention is that he lists kind of the qualities of, of being a good botanist. The first one he said was like good eyesight. That helps be able to squint <laughs> at things. I think it helps if you're doing taxonomy. Um, the next and, and more important is having an open mind. And then kind of a part of that is bracing yourself for the unexpected, like being willing to learn something new, but more specifically being willing to leap into dark. So to go somewhere where you don't know the answer or where the answer you get is not what you thought it would be and sort of be confronted with that unknown and that unexpected and still be able to embrace that. And that was really important. So um, that is Mark Spencer and that's based on an interview that he gave for the Life Scientific that we'll put the link to in the show notes. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 So I have something that just by chance ties in with some of the things that you talked uh, talked about when presenting Mark Spencer, um, because he said that it's important to have a keen eye to to work as a botanist if you want to work with plants. You have to spot small little plants. And I have today a bias that sort of explains why we sometimes struggle with this stuff. It's called the um, aesthetic bias. And uh, this is something that I found on, on, I think the article that I read was on Wired. And um, it's two scientists from Italy. And they, during a talk, when they were, I think they were going for a run together or something. And they were talking about a specific plant that one of the two was researching where there was hardly anything in the literature from before. And they were discussing, like, why could that be? Why is there not anything already published? Uh, And they came to the hypothesis that maybe because the plant is sort of less aesthetically pleasing, a little bit ugly, maybe. Um, How is it ugly? I don't really know what, they didn't really describe the plant that they were working with, but they said that maybe it was not one of the most sort of standout pretty plants that you might find. And so they did an analysis of 113 species that are found in the Southwestern Alps. Um, So that's a mountain range that's very biodiverse. So um, a a place of study, like there's many studies conducted in these areas. Um, And then they looked at the different species and tried to correlate traits of the species with how many um, studies are published about these species. And they found out that... um, that the plants that were most at risk of extinction were the ones that were most written about, as you might imagine if you sort of look at it from like a purely objective uh, point of view, that you just think like, what is the most important we have to study? The things that are going to be extinct at one point. Um, so, but that's not what they found. They found that the plants that, for example, had blue flowers had um, higher correlation with being uh, well-sighted and mm-hmm. plants that are taller. So plants that stand out, plants that when you pass by a meadow or something, you can actually see the plant because it's taller than the plants around it. And so this you, is making it, me feel really guilty that we always talk about blue plants, like blue flowering <laughs> plants. <laughs> We're part of the problem, Yaram. I mean, we, we we talked about it before, right? Like the blue is something special. The blue is something that you don't find that often, and therefore it's interesting to study it more interesting than a green plant because most plants if not all plants are green to some extent well i mean like the green flowers yeah um so uh that's what they they observed and then in the article they talk about this how this is in not only in plant science a problem that we have a bias to 
interact with things that we find aesthetically pleasing or interesting um, mm-hmm. in kind of in conversation uh, conservation biology um, in zoos for example um, zoos are more likely to protect the animals that look interesting and nice and sort of cute or um, yeah just aesthetically pleasing in whatever extent um, than the animals that are the most endangered to be extinct um, there's a big bias towards mammals um in terms uh, compared to invertebrates for example even though there's many invertebrate species that are at the brink of extinction but they just don't look as cute well there's this concept of flagship species which is usually like large charismatic mammals um that act sort of to draw public attention to conservation and then you know hopefully from that you get the conservation support and dollars which you can then spend on the the crappy ugly shrimps that live in the bottom of a cage (laughs) a cave yeah yeah and so they say for plant science this this obviously is a problem that we have this aesthetic bias if we talk about conservation biology or just for example phytomining looking for plants are uh, have interesting properties and if we only look for the ones that stand out on their own already we might miss the cure for alzheimer's or other interesting properties because we don't care for them and instead try to focus on other stuff that other people have worked on already and that looks looks interesting um but it's also like it's not it's not that we are sort of bad as humans or as scientists for, to do that. Of course, like biases is something that we have to be aware of. That we talk about this very often, um, but also in the scientific system in itself, you have this snowball effect, right? Somebody publishes a study, and then other people read that, find that interesting, and then they continue to work on that. What's presented in the study, and that's that's sort of inherent in the scientific system that we like mm. to continue threads that other people started, and therefore once you have a critical mass of of a handful of a dozen of papers around a specific species and it's interesting you get more and more and then it it grows and you have like this um, non-linear relationship of like how many papers you have about a specific plant just because of course it's easier to work on an existing body where the groundwork has been laid out already and you can build your science on top of that than to always start from scratch and figuring out like how does this plant work how can we grow it in a greenhouse what are the growth conditions that it likes um so it's a sort of an inherent interesting problem with the scientific system and something that it's worthwhile to tackle but it's not something that we should sort of point fingers at researchers and be like look you studied the blue plant again stop studying the blue plant go for the small weedy ones where you have Mm -hmm. to like bend down and dig in the dirt a little bit to to study it don't take the ones that are easy to reach um i mean we also have to do that but um that's it's inherent in the system that we sort of not always do that not everybody can study a a new plant every single time so yeah that's wait i just oh Mm -hmm. sorry i'm just looking at the article and the article is open access actually Mm mm-hmm Adamo and colleagues on nature plants. I swear I looked at this like two weeks ago and it wasn't. Is that possible? <laughs> that can't be possible, can it? I don't know. Wow, I don't I'm understand. having a mental break. I don't understand the intricacies of what is accessible and what isn't. Um, so I just always just hope that magically it, it, it is accessible. This one is open access. Um, it's, it's, it's available. So go and check it out. Cool. Yeah, we'll link that. Um, and also the Wired article that I read that's quite interesting um, to look at because, um, yeah, they have a nice summary and some interviews with people also from Kew Gardens that talk about similar things uh, in terms of like plant blindness, which is related to that. 
Um, I actually, I know one of the names on the papers and they're from Australia's Kew Gardens. So we have King's, um, King's Park mm. Botanical Gardens. So there's, there's a West Australian point of view in there as well. <laughs> yes. Lovely. Yeah. So that's the aesthetic bias. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. All right, I think I want to play the game again where I give you some methods and you have to guess <laughs> how it's related to plants. This one is a lot easier though, so I want you to buzz in really earlier here, okay? <laughs> okay, I'll try to. The year is 2015. Mm -hmm. Good year for plants. <laughs> You go to Kenya, mm -hmm. and there you find yourself five individuals of Giraffa Camelopardalis. So it's a giraffe. Gi yeah, giraffes, I imagine, <laughs> from the first name of the Latin, first part of the Latin name. You need at least five individuals. Mm -hmm. You follow them around for a bit. Creepy, but okay. Creepy, but important for your experiment. <laughs> After you followed them from some them for some time and completed your mission, you look for some zebras. <laughs> Equus, Quagga, Bertolini, Bertoli, in the same savanna. <laughs> and the giraffes are like, oh, finally that creep is gone. And the zebras are like, what's going on? Then you follow the zebras for a bit. And that's basically all I want to tell you. Um, then you go back to the lab. Okay. You go back to the lab. And you, your mission completed, you take what you have from your mission and you start analyzing it. So I imagine, again, it's like droppings from the animals. Oh, yeah. And then you're looking at like the plant fibers and seeds and whatnot is in the droppings. And if, I don't know, giraffes could help with seed dispersal or if like some fibers of some tree can be digested by... No, so I see what's happening here. This is, this is an example of bias where you're using the information that you got from last week and you're using that to inform the experiments of this week. And that's not what we're going. We are, we are in dung. Dung is the correct place to be. But there's not <laughs> seeds in the dung. Um, what might be the value of the dung? I would think like breakdown products of the diet. Mm, no. Um, then uh, some some parasites in the dung, uh, some beetles, some. From the point of view of a plant, what is poop? A fertilizer. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> so you're looking at the nutrients in the dung that plants could use. Yeah. Specifically, they're looking at the differences between the nitrogen to phosphorus ratio within the dung, which actually happens to differ between the two species. So zebras have a ratio of 3.5. So for every phosphorus, there's 3.5 times more nitrogen. Whereas in giraffes, it's way more nitrogen. So it's about 6.4. Mm -hmm. And the important thing about this, the really cool thing about this experiment is they're looking at how the different contents the different ratios of nitrogen to phosphorus can actually stimulate the growth of different types of plants so they found that the high high nitrogen to phosphorus ratio of the giraffe dung actually suppressed nodulation and tree seedling growth mm -hmm. um so like the grasses grow more so they there's like grasses versus tree seedlings so with giraffe dung Grasses do better, and because of that, they suppress the growth of the seed tree, the tree seedlings. Excuse me. Whereas under the zebra dung, 
the tree seedlings had an advantage mm-hmm. um, because they got this nodulation and they were able to do nitrogen fixation, whereas the grasses can't do that, so they need to have the nitrogen that comes straight from the giraffe. So this is now a really cool mechanism where, depending on how many giraffes and zebras there are in a savanna, there's different amounts of giraffe and zebra poo, and therefore there's different ratios of nitrogen to phosphorus, and therefore you're favoring either plants that can sort of fix nitrogen on their own. I mean, they've got some help from some bacteria, but they can do it, you know, by themselves, um, which is the, the tree seedlings, um, or if, if it's different, if it's a giraffe and you have the grass. So that's, that's really cool, right? Like, mm-hmm. there are also obviously other possible effects from grazing and from stomping that can also <laughs> affect the the, the um, plant dynamics. But I really like this is kind of this, again, example of this feedback between plants and animals, how it's, you know, the plants are eating and the plants, uh, the, the animals are eating and the animals are trampling, um, but the plants are also getting something from the animals in a different way. So, it, yeah. To me, it sounds like terraforming, like the giraffes and zebras are passively forming the environment with their excrements. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not exactly terraforming, like they're not changing but on the, the other physical way, you properties could look at it from, of the earth. But that's an animal point of view. You could look at it from the other way and say that the the plants are choosing what animals come along by feeding them. Mm-hmm. Like the animals are going to be there. Like they're probably pooping because they're grazing, right? So the animals are going to be there based on a certain plant, and because of that, they might give more nutrients that maybe favors more of that plant, or maybe it's kind of a balancing thing where it's favoring the other plants, like. Mm-hmm. Circle yeah. of life, man. Anyway, that that <laughs> I just I, my takeaway is like if I would be a farmer and I need like specific fertilizers for my for my plants, then I would know like if I need more nitrogen, then I would get giraffes on my fields, and if I need less nitrogen, I would uh, just get some zebras here in the Berlin I, and, area. You know, I have actually come across that problem before. I I have hoyas and I want them to flower, and I think I need a fertilizer that has a specifically high nitrogen to phosphorus ratio. And I remember like a couple of years ago, I was looking at the the normal fertilizers you get in the shops and none of them had the right ratios. They were all like more equal as opposed to like tons more nitrogen. So, so maybe zoo. I just need, a, <laughs> just need a giraffe. That's yeah. the answer. Just like either steal some giraffe poo or maybe politely ask them. But I would probably go for like for a heist and steal some like a wheelbarrow full of, of giraffe poo from, from the zoo. And then be like, finally, high nitrogen dung. <laughs> Anyway, that was um, Herbivore Dung Stoichiometry Drives Competition Between Savanna Trees and Grasses by Judith Sitters and Harry Oder Venterink, which was published in um, the Journal of Ecology in February this year. I have a story that um, is about May 18th. Um, that was Plant Appreciation Day um, two days ago. And um, part of that was 10 years ago. There was um, a big event where they asked for the 100 most important uh, questions about plant science and the new phytologist. And um, they would collect them, a panel, a jury would look at them, they would sort of like bunch them together when they had like duplicates and so on. And the jury would um, have a look at them and then try to answer these. And then they published this open access 10 years ago, um, uh, an article talking about like the 100 most pressing plant questions and um how we can uh, and how to answer them or rather as a sort of collection of questions to for other researchers then to build on them and be like, look, these are questions that people have. Maybe we can f- use research to find answers. 
And now, 10 years later, they want to do the same thing again and are collecting questions right now. So if you have questions about plant science um, that you think are that are important to you or that are un unanswered or something that you always wondered about, you can follow the link and then click and then submit your questions there. And then again, they will collect all of them, group them together and then have a, a panel of experts rank them and collect this list of 100 pressing plant science questions. Um, of uh of today so yeah i haven't submitted I, a question yet but i will think about submitting one i want to ask you yaron what you think the most pressing i'm going to really put you on the spot here what's the most pressing plant science question yaron um i mean pressing in terms of urgency i would think um how can we like adjust like or, or set, set plants up to respond to multiple multiple different changes in the environment that occur rapidly like rising temperatures increased flooding and changed co2 level um so many factors big factors that change at the same time how can we um, protect plants from that how can we adjust our crop plants for that um how do we conserve plants this is this just is what i would think is the most pressing mm -hmm. to me yeah i'm just looking at the questions from the last round and it does seem to be that there are a lot about you know how can we feed the world mm -hmm. how can we what should we be focusing on how can we control pests things like that so yeah. yeah yeah i think many of them are the typical questions that we often ask and don't have uh, an, an immediate answer to but um, very complex answers for often yeah but i haven't looked at like all of the questions so far but uh that um i imagine that there, might, there will also be some some in there that are less straightforward because also like in the article they answered a couple of them in the beginning but uh, most of them they didn't answer uh and mm -hmm. sort of just collected them and grouped them and ranked them for other people then to use as a starting point so yeah that's 100 most important or 100 important questions for plant science Oh, I, one thing I wanted to mention, I just saw a publication um, that came out in Nature Communications. And the publication is called The Membrane Localized Protein Kinase NAP4K4. Mm -hmm. And the K4 at the end is that it's a kinase 4, which means it's a kinase, 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 kinase. And kinases are things that put phosphates on proteins to turn them on or off, basically, simplistically speaking. So I think this is like something that phosphorylates something that phosphorylates something that phosphorylates something that phosphorylates something. <laughs> it sounds like it, yeah. It sounds like <laughs> I'm not really, um, I'm not very confident about this kind of um, protein phosphorylation signaling cascade stuff. Anyway, um, the sorry, the, the title was The Membrane Localized Protein Kinase NAP for Kinase, 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 Kinase. Top three regulates thermomorphogenesis. And this is just kind of a topic that I, I wanted to sort of flag because I hadn't really heard much about it until very recently. And I do think it's quite a new topic. So there was a publication that came out in 2016 that sort of identified some some proteins, phytochromes in, in plants. And these have traditionally been known to be involved in light sensing in plants. And they identified them um, in the science publication in 2016 as able to also basically directly sense temperature. And they found that 
one of these proteins was inactivated at a rate that was like proportional to temperature when light mm. wasn't involved. So it was getting signals from both light and temperature, but when the lights were off, it was like this proportional reaction, which was was one of the the first big discoveries, I think. So like an and internal then, thermometer. Internal thermometer, yeah. So there's also these things that are called um, thermo switches, which are basically a bit of sequence. It can be um, either on the DNA or the RNA. So it's it's controlling how much of the the RNA is made or how much of the protein is made. I think the ones we've found are on the RNA, so they're controlling how much of the protein is made. And it's basically a bit of sequence that has a structure. And depending on how hot it is, the structure changes. So this can just be like, it gets hot and then like bonds break because things are wiggling a bit faster because of heat. Heat is kinetic. Um, so the bonds break and it changes the structure. And therefore that, for example, can make a a go signal activate, uh, like present or visible. And it, it was locked up in a structure and suddenly now it's open and suddenly you start getting um, protein made from this RNA. So we know about also thermo switches. And I think I mentioned on the podcast before in last year in August, there was something that came out in Nature where they found this prion-like domain. So prions are these like messed up proteiny things that are associated with like mad cow disease. Um, mm -hmm. So there's this this other protein called ELF three, which is also involved in um, like the circadian clock and and light sensing and and flowering and stuff. And it has this sort of messy bit on it, which responds again to heat. And when it gets the heat, it sort of makes the protein kind of pop out of solution. It changes the the, the whole like mm -hmm. the um what, I don't even know what, so like it's, the, it's, the phase. It's, it's a phase transition, so it changes the phase of the protein. It's it's yeah, it's exactly. It's like popping out. Um, so this was also discovered, and that's only last year. So this is, seems to be like a really cool um, field. And again, it's it's not something that I thought about much, much, even when I was a plant molecular biologist. I thought about growth towards light. I thought about gravity, um, like gravitropism, so like growth down towards the center of the Earth by roots. Um, not much about thermomorphogenesis. And I was just reading the introduction of this paper to sort of look at what can happen and you know, the leaves can move up and down to sort of get different amounts of heat. You can also get in curling, but you can also get like leaves growing outwards so that when the plant grows, it sort of is less bunched up and the there's more gaps in between the leaves, which can help with cooling. Um, you can have different growth on the edges or the outs, like the outside versus the inside of a leaf sheath. So you can get more like sort of curling or something like this. So it's it seems like there's something where we're we're getting more and more information only recently. Um, this paper is looking at how these um, phosphorylations, so there's like post-translational modifications, can help also regulate the sensing of temperature. But it's cool, and it's something I want to read more about. It's one yeah. of those things I'm like, wow, like I don't know anything about that, and. Like was, plants can feel warmth. That's of course they can. Like we did, like we did know that. That that's in itself yeah, is not I, completely new. But like, but I always like in my sort of naive uh, understanding, it would always like a chemical reaction, which is like stuff that happens in the cell, um, happens faster at higher temperatures until there's like a breaking point, and it happens slower at lower temperatures. And to me, like naively, I would think most of the regulation would happen on that level. That if like if it's colder. 
like the entire metabolism just is runs a little bit slower. Yeah, very direct physics, kinetics, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and much less about like actual molecules that would sense the temperature and then trigger signals that are like not just physical reactions to temperature but then sort of biochemical reactions to temperature where it's like look we're sensing it gets cold so we have to start preparing some antifreeze proteins or other sort of that's like a very extreme example but uh, or change the growth behavior this 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 sort of thing so yeah that's really really interesting and uh, like, uh, like on one hand, of course they can. We know this. We know that like plants have to know when it's warm to open their buds in spring, and like this is entirely how things work. But like when you see these like direct at the molecular levels, it's so delightful when you just see this thing where it's like, yeah, this this protein is like popping out of phase. This other protein is like wiggling its bits about and changing structure. Like it's just. It's so incredible at the molecular level. It's it's so clever. It's just really it's really amazing. Yeah. And just to really highlight that the science paper that came out in 2016 in the abstract it says some species of plants can distinguish differences of 1 degree Celsius, which just seems Yeah. So I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, I not, absolutely not, can't do not, that. Not consciously, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Not. I mean, I guess the plants can't consciously either. But like, I I'm get, like, do I feel cold? Maybe I should put a jumper on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some parts of the human body, specifically the male body, that sort of automatically also <laughs> react to small temperature well changes. So, um, I, but I also can't do that consciously. I can't be like, oh, there's a degree too cold. I should change some morphology about me. Um, so yeah, but it's really cool. Yeah, I guess. I guess my point is, I, I'm sure I'll. F- We've mentioned this again before on the podcast. I'm sure we'll come back to it again in two months where I, I rediscover it and I'm delighted again. <laughs> but like, it's one of those things where like, I know theoretically it's happening. I understand that like for my job, I have to realize that plants can can sense temperature change. That's not a surprise. But like, when I read these molecular level things, it's the the beauty and the complexity of the universe is just so incredible, and it's really, it's really exciting. <laughs> I want to continue with, I think I'm, I'm doing this now, um, a story, a little bit of a WTF story for me that I, I read. Um, and I don't really know how I should tell this, so I just will like straightforward tell it. Like Scientists put algae in the brain. And do you have an what? idea why you would put algae in a brain? I mean, they did that in mice, not in humans, but they want to do it in humans too. Why would you want to put algae in a brain? Um, because you want to oxygenate parts of the brain that are having oxygen limitation, yeah. which can be a result of something like stroke. Yes. Oh my goodness. Exactly that. But the points, problem I is, get points. the problem is like algae, they like to have light to do to make oxygen, right? Yes. And it's pretty dark in your skull because mm-hmm. the skull is in a way there's no visible light really there to make. Got to drill a hole. So, um, yeah, there would be one way, like drill a hole, put some light in there. Or like Donald Trump said, just like put some of the UV light into your blood where the COVID is. Um, I mean, there was literally something that he suggested um, that scientists should look in, look into that. Um, you so, know, but the thing is, we mocked him and it turns out that's actually been inspirational. No, for it, li- it really wasn't. <laughs> um, the, 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 the problem usually is when you have light, you can only change it sort of energetically downwards. So if you have a blue light, you can have that hit a, a molecule and then it emits another light wavelength but that's like a longer wavelength with less energy so from mm-hmm. blue you get like green and then eventually red or infrared um, sure. 
But in the brain, you can get infrared light that can penetrate the skull to some extent. Um, mm. But to change that into visible light, you have to sort of upscale it. You have to add energy to it. And as it turns out, there are some like weird nanoparticles that I don't understand how they work, but they can do that. So you put like. infrared light on the nanoparticles and then like fluorescence, they emit a different wavelength, but one of higher energy, one in the visible light spectrum. So in mice, they put these um, nanoparticles with the algae in the mouse brain and then uh, put uh, infrared light on it. The nanoparticles did their magic, um, emitted visible light. The algae took the visible light and made oxygen. And with that, they could um, increase the oxygen levels in the brain in these mice. And Holy just crap. like, what? Why? <laughs> this, is, this is just like... This 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 is one step. I mean, one huge leap. In fact, more complicated. But it reminds me of something that we've. I don't know if we've talked about it before, but I've heard about it before. So, there's somebody who had this idea of using algae inside um, bandages to help wounds heal. Basically, so mm -hmm. it was like when you do these. I think synthetic skin grafting. You you want to keep it oxygenated to prevent the new skin grafts from dying because mm -hmm. they don't initially have the blood contact, so they they become necrotic. They don't have connection to capillaries, so they don't get the 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 supply they need, the blood and oxygen. So they there was this idea of impregnating with algae for that. Um, but then you had the similar kind of problem. But it's, it's skin, so it's yeah, yeah. it's easier to get light light <laughs> there than skull. We're not adding like some sort of magic where you create energy or yeah, I, I don't understand how there that must works. be an ex there's something external that's there's something powering that where's that energy coming from i don't know if they like take up heat and sort of cool down the brain a little bit oh, at the same maybe time they take up heat from the brain maybe yeah. it's like a chemical reaction and they sort of used up these nanoparticles by like that there's like have a limited time that they work and then they don't work anymore Look, I, I know there are literally billions of chemical reactions happening in my brain all the time but i don't want external chemical reactions i don't want algae growing in my brain that's the <laughs> thing somebody's got algae and what i'm basically imagining is popping candy like that's the only way my brain can understand this concept of these nanoparticles yeah. like, you get some algae you get some popping candy and you shove them in your brain yeah. and <laughs> but yeah so the idea is that um eventually when this left the experimental field then this can be an immediate treatment for uh, like acute stroke so that you can sort of inject a mixture of these algae together with the nanoparticles and imagine you put like an IR lamp very close to your head so that you get the infrared radiation. You'd wear a helmet. You'd have like a little IR helmet, I guess. Something like this. I'm and then you can like do sort of first responder oxygen boost in the brain before you can actually treat blood clot that's causing the problem. Um, that's sort of I mean, I imagine also like it, in my mind, the fact that algae is the best thing to do makes me think that the previous response was to basically strick a, stick a straw in there and be like, <laughs> like blow bubbles oh in there. Like... I like if <laughs> algae is the cleanest thing we have I'm I'm thinking backwards that must be what we're doing now but this is why we shouldn't be allowed near human bodies that's why we have <laughs> yes. to work on plants obviously but as it turns out plant science is very important for brain algae Ooh. I want to mention something else I discovered which I probably should have known but didn't know and you know what it's okay to admit that <laughs> so circadian rhythms Yoram tell me what circadian rhythms are um, these are the internal clocks of plants or also humans and animals and things. So internal mm -hmm. timekeepers, some sort of molecular reactions that take the span of a day usually, right? Usually it's like a 12-hour, 24-hour cycle in that like a week, for example, or a month. 
But yeah, so the, the common thing for plants is a 24-hour kind of time piece just to line up with daily cycles. So, you know, yeah. you, need, you need to know when the sun's coming around. What I didn't realize um, is that there are different clocks with different time oscillations, so different from the 24 hours, in different parts of the same plant. Oh, yeah, I didn't know and that And I either. guess that makes a lot of logical sense because the roots don't need to necessarily be doing exactly the same thing, although they are all synced up. So like roots still need to grow when there's energy and the energy is ultimately coming from the leaves. So there is like something, but apparently there are like functional specialization, which means that different organs within the same plant can have different circadian rhythms. And this can also be different by plant to plant. So there's a study that came out in the Journal of Integrative Plant Biology um, by Wang et al. It's called Circadian Rhythms Driving a Fast-Paced Root Clock Implicates Species-Specific Regulation in Metacargo Trunculata. So Metacargo Trunculata is basically a kind of beanie thing, <laughs> clovery thing. What's the? It's a barrel clover. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a very useful model species um, because it's it's a legume and it, it has the ability to have um, symbiosis with, with these nitrogen-fixing, um, like, fungi, which, like, Arabidopsis, the main, the main model plant, can't do. So it's kind of the model for these symbioses and for this nitrogen fixation. Um, but anyway, they found that in Medicargo, there was this, this difference between the circadian rhythm of the leaves and the roots. But in Medicargo, the... Let me just check it. The <laughs> root clock runs faster than the shoot clock which is different from Arabidopsis where the shoot runs faster than the roots. Mm-hmm. And that I didn't expect and I don't know and I don't understand why that's happening, but <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, more more science is clearly the answer. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, again, I really enjoy it when I come across something and I'm like, oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah, I wonder, like, yeah, I don't have an intuitive idea why you would have this like differential like different time zones within a plant and does it have something to do with the fact that they've got these these relationships going on like is that why there's differences in the clocks is it is it because their clocks in their roots have to sync up with their partners more in different ways than arabidopsis like who knows yeah i'm sure somebody knows or somebody's gonna find out soon yeah if you know by any chance tell us (laughs) (laughs) So uh, my final story today is something um, about microplastic or plastic, plastics in general, not even microplastics, just single-use basic plastics. Um, Mm -hmm. And there has been a study done that found out that 55% of all single-use plastic um, is produced by just 20 companies, which means 20 companies (gasps) is something we Mm -hmm. can regulate. Um, so it's not, uh, however, most regulation that we have today focuses sort of on the end product. And so here, these, these companies, they are making the basic polymers. So somebody who wants to build a, ca- a carton for milk, they buy the polymers from a company and then mm-hmm. they put some paper on it and then fill milk inside and then they have a milk cart- a carton. And um, these sort of end users they are quite numerous and regulating those is hard because if you have like thousands of companies that make some variety of carton for liquids, um, then you have to find a way to regulate all of those. But if you would regulate the people who are producing the polymers, 
you have a much easier access. And then when you, for example, would tax them more, that would sort of trickle down into the, the network of people buying from them. They would have to pay higher prices and in the end somewhere somebody has an incentive to buy less of that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the idea here. Um, and I wanted to show that because they, like part of that study is a really cool um visualization that they did like the flows of who's investing in these companies who are these companies and where is the waste ending up uh, and it shows us that's like the the top producer of this is exxon mobile um uh like a mining like a oil mining company that's also making i i only know them for having like tanker oil spills and yeah i think that's what really- they're famous for that's um, what they're famous for. And then there's uh, Sinopec, I think is a Chinese um, large producer, and Dow is mm-hmm. also, the, that's the top three. But then there's like the top 20, they are making up 55% of all of the production. I found that in itself interesting, but also I really like playing with the with visualization and also um, you can show like, like um, have a map and see where all of that is produced um, and how that works. And so, I found it quite interesting to play with that. Um, and that's, yeah, I'm, I'm always happy when I find like really cool data visualization. And um, this is one of these examples. I have another fact. Um, I mean, it's not less of a fact and more of a reference to a research highlight. So it's something that came out in the plant journal and it's called Diploid Triploid Tetraploid, Chromatin Organization in Polyploid Watermelon. And it's talking about a new paper that came out in the plant journal where they look at um, how tetraploid watermelon has different sort of organization of their chromosomes. So basically, most like many plant species and also humans, they're diploid, which means they basically have two copies of um, each genome, each gene. It's one from mum and one from dad. That's kind of the standard. But it's quite common in crops that we've had sort of a doubling event where you've got now four so tetraploid um instead and you can even have like hexaploid so wheat has six copies coming from three different ancestors and this can be really useful when it comes to um having crops because when you get these extra genes you suddenly sort of have spares and these spares can be adapted to make new traits but also sometimes having double can help you make like bigger fruits or you know something like that that can be beneficial to humans in between that all, you also have like triploid. So you've got dup- dup- uh, sorry, diploid and tetraploid. And in between there's like triploid, so having three copies. And having three is less good because as it turns out, an uneven number doesn't divide nicely by two. So when that three, that triploid plant wants to make its own gametes, its own pollen and eggs, so its sex cells to go to the next generation, things get kind of confused internally and, you know, it just basically can't. So the, the sort of rule is you can have duplicates of two, but you can't have odd numbers. However, <laughs> sometimes not being able to make the next generation is a benefit. And as it turns out, um, a scientist called Hitoshi Kihara, who was around from 1893 to 1986, so quite a while back, actually utilized this, this problem with a triploid to make a seedless fruit. And specifically, he created seedless watermelons. Mm-hmm. So he took a normal watermelon, which is diploid, it's got the two copies. He forced it to double its genome by treating it with a chemical, which basically 
gave it problems when it was reproducing. So then he had four. And then he crossed the four with the two, <laughs> which means that you have a six, but then it's half of that because it's a, it's a child. So you end up with three. So he did this kind of like cruel mixing and matching to this plant where he first chemically treated it, then like interbred it and end up with three. And that's how we got watermelon without seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already quite cool to me, like this story of how this seedless watermelon came about. And they said that like this method is basically how we make seedless watermelon today. Obviously, it's, it's a bit refined, but it's basically the same thing. But then on top of that, um, there's now, it's also a genetic resource where you can kind of study how plants deal with having more or less genomes, um, how they fit everything into the nucleus. Suddenly you've got like twice as much actual DNA and the structures that hold the DNA together. So you've got to like physically cram them in there. Um, what that means about how you express the genes. So if you're just expressing everything at the same level as you were before, suddenly you've got 200% gene expression, which means that the machinery could also like end up having problems. You could get things like there's just like not enough space for all the stuff you need to do basically. So there's all these extra problems um, which are really important for our crop development. So again, this is like an interesting tool um, to study that. So anyway, um, <laughs> that was a very long way of saying science is cool again. <laughs> Seedless watermelons <laughs> are cool. Um, I'll put the link to the research highlight in the notes and you guys can read it in your own time. But did you yeah. know that's how you make seedless watermelon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I my favorite example of uh, multi, like polyploid or like like multiples of genomes is strawberry because in strawberry we have so many different varieties. Like there's a whole list of them, like starting from the diploid state. Um, then there's like the tetraploid, so it's doubled. But there's also a pentaploid, so five copies, mm -hmm. a hexaploid, uh, so six, seven, eight, and even ten copies. Um, uh in of the genome and especially the octoploid ones so eight ones uh, eight copies they are very often commercially used and have like a large and like flavorful fruit where for example the the tenfold increase um or like the 10 copies of the of the genome um is is sort of an, an artificial f um crossing event uh and this one is not yet commercially important and this is very small for example so it's, it's not always uh, related that the, the, they get bigger when they have more um dna in there but very often that's the case and for me strawberry that's always the example that i like to think of because there's like all of this crossing and you have all of these varieties and some of them are sterile and some of them are not um mm -hmm. so yeah it's i mean strawberries anyway they don't have to go through sexual reproduction to um propagate they make these runners yeah. mm -hmm. so that's also one thing how plants can sort of even in the wild end up with an uneven number of chromosomes because then they just lose the ability of sexual propagation but as long as they can have non-asexual propagation like runners or cuttings or stuff like that um they can still survive and become more isn't that also one of the reasons we use strawberry um when we do like DNA extractions for like oh, I never, science I, communication, I, I didn't I think, think it's of because that. They, but that could be very. They well have be. a high ploidy. I mean, it's also because they smell nice when you squish them with soap, so it makes like a strawberry blah 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 smell. They're easy to squish, even for small fingers. But I think also they have a high ploidy level, so you, there's just like kind of a lot of bang for your buck. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's true or not because maybe they also have like less DNA or less chromosomes. Like, I don't actually know the killer bases per strawberry gram, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> but it, intuitively, it would make sense that that's the case. But yeah, that's um, that's polyploidy in, in plants. I think with that, we can move on to our cat fact. 
cat fact. Cat fact. Cat fact. And with cats, there's always like a limited th a number of things. Like we can, we already talked about why they like catnip, why yeah. they blink at us, why they like to sit on our laptops is something that we talked about in the past. And can I request something? I want you to tell me why they bite me sometimes. <laughs> because you are um, like too aggressive with your love, Tegan. You try to too aggressively pet them. Non-consensual petting, yeah. Yeah, non-consensual. <laughs> <laughs> There's this really friendly cat near me, and like I was, I was patting it, and it was loving it. But then I was like deliberately poking its belly, and it was kind of like trying to get its head underneath my hand. Like it was like removing its whole body to try and get that my hand would go and pat its head. Like it was, like, it was very clearly non-verbally communicating that the belly was the right, not the right spot, but it was happy for me to scratch its head. And then I kept on doing it deliberately and it just like would pick up my hand with its teeth and move my hand back towards where its head was and then put its head quickly under. Like it was kind what of biting, but in cat. a way where it was just like, you know, bringing me, it's like, no, 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 back we go. No, 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 no. <laughs> like The best cat, no. really the best yeah. cat. No, one of our cats would then just like first lift the paw and be like watch out wag its tail and would like scratch you and then if you still would not learn which usually do because it hurts but then would bite you mm, um, fair enough but yeah so the question that they resolved in this study that um that i'm talking about today is why cats love to sit in boxes and i have to already give the spoiler that they don't really answer why they like to sit in boxes but they did um a sort of um experiment about Uh, visual um, if they like, would like to sit in sort of fake boxes um, it's an experiment where the, the question what is, is the, a fake, sorry what is a fake box like there are optical illusions um, and it's known that like humans fall for some optical illusions dogs fall for some optical illusions and now the question was do cats fall for optical illusions of boxes so I would guess can I, can I mm -hmm. put forward my, my conclusion I don't think so because I like. I think they like the physical experience of the box. I think they would go towards the box and then as soon as they realize, like cats always choose boxes that are too small for them because they like that all of their parts touch all of the box. Mm -hmm. That's so I think that they would go for the boxes and they would try to go in the boxes and then when they realize it didn't make them feel comfortable and like comforted, <laughs> they would like be like, this is not okay. We need to fix the situation and go away. Yeah, but that's not, um, so, so <laughs> that's not what happens. Um, I've the, solved the science here. The, the experiment looked as follows. So if you imagine you take a circle and you cut out a corner of the circle, a 90 degree angle, and then you take mm -hmm. four of these circles. You can arrange them in a way that all of the cor corners point to each other and they sort of form a visual box because then sort of the negative space makes a square and you can rotate the circles <laughs> so they don't make a square. If you look in the article, there's images of that um, so it, uh, where you can see what it looks like. But So you sort of create something where your brain interprets it as a box But what mm -hmm. really is there are four circles with a thing cut out of the, of the uh, out of the circle. There are no real edges; they are just the corners of, okay. of a box. Um, and they put that on the ground, and then they had cats um, in brought into the room, and then they would record if the cat would sit in the circle that sort of forms a box, or the ones that where the corners are turned outwards that it doesn't form a box. Um, but the circles would be in the same distance from one another. There would be no real edges. There would be no corn, like no sides or anything like that. Um, and the cool thing is that they not only did that as like scientists in the lab, they did it as a citizen science project where they had like um, 
hundreds of cats, like 500 cats that were tested in, in that um, with 30 cat owners doing like the full experiment over six days um, and were recording that and collecting these numbers and they could show that like in a home, in a familiar environment, which is very important, that kids, cats would go in a box and sit in the optical illusion box that's not really there. That's just like the four corner pieces put together, um, which shows that it's a visual thing for the cats. They, they see or also of it it doesn't mean it's only that but they see a 2d shape um they can sort of interpolate in their brain when they just see the corners um they can interpolate and then um see oh there's a square i like being in squares and then they sit in the square um and i think it was also like when it was a little bit smaller they preferred it over like a large square that was also part of the study um but they don't you're just saying that to placate me (laughs) No, they're still not saying um, why they would like to sit there. I mean, there's all of this idea that it's like a good hiding spot. They can they can't be attacked, but they can see something in front of them and then pounce out and attack it and stuff like that. That makes them feel comfortable. Um, but yeah, they don't just need like a cardboard box to sit in. Like just something drawn on the ground is is good enough for them to at least stop for a little bit. I think they prefer it if it's a real box. Yeah, that's a big citizen science project project involving cats. With that, I think um, it's the end of our show. Are you crafting now a little cat box? Yeah, you made some. Like I, I haven't had the chance yet to, to build something like that myself. Did and I do it right? Yeah, that's exactly it. But then you would put it a little bit spaced out apart so that you have a gap in between all of them, um, and then would observe the cat if it uh, would sit in there. You would also have to wear sunglasses so the cat can't make eye contact and get sort of I can close my eyes. Yeah. How long do I have to do this before the cats come? (laughs) It's not a summoning circle, Tegan. It's not like you're not a witch putting this on a... Wait, you literally told me they put the squares and then the cats came to the squares. (laughs) I don't understand. Like... I would like to... No, that would actually be fun to do this um, outside, like on, on, on the street. Put Like draw this maybe in chalk on the street and just like see if the, the neighborhood cats just stop by for a little bit and sit in there. So I think with that, we can end the show. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and um, send us pictures of your cat sitting in visual ilu- optical illusion boxes. Even better, send us the cat. Send us the cat. <laughs> We had this other horrible fact in the past. Please don't send us the cat like this. Um, you can <laughs> reach out to me on Twitter. That's at Plants um, On Facebook and Instagram, it's at Plants and Pipettes. That's usually me. Uh, we also have a blog, uh, pl- uh, plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish We've stories. Been taking a little bit of a break while life has been hitting us in the face for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. But I think my home life is kind of sorted now as far as finding a new roommate. So... Back on that soon, we promise. Yeah. And um, yeah, you can rate us on wherever you can rate podcasts. Um, if you want to support us, there's a support link at the end of the show notes. And uh, as you- always, the best support you can give is sharing things with your friends and recommending that they listen to us and follow yeah. our stuff. Exactly. And if you want to follow me on TikTok, that's Science Johan <laughs> on TikTok. Uh, shameless self plug at the end here. <laughs> Opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wow, we just went for it. I have no shame. <laughs> <laughs>